All right, greetings rulers. Uh, welcome back to the show, special election coverage edition. Uh, my name is Isaac. I'm extremely pleased and honored to be joined by Breen Willette, NDP candidate for Vancouver Centre. How are you doing, Breen? I'm doing really well. We're having a fantastic campaign. Yeah, I'm sure you're extremely busy. We got, what, 10 days to go before election day on the 20th here? Is that all? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's a whirlwind. Um, you know, I, I actually find this election cycle quite a bit more engaging and interesting than, than some of the ones in the recent past. Um, and I think there's a lot of issues that are really being brought to the fore a lot more for Canadians. Um, a lot of opportunities, I think, for people to actually think about their values and how their votes reflect those values. Um, I know you've got a really broad uh, platform. You hit on a lot of really critical issues, I think, very eloquently and intelligently. Um, but, uh, you know, first and foremost, I, I think the question at a lot of, at the top of a lot of people's minds, or one of the questions at the top of a lot of people's minds is, um, the question of housing for Canadians. And I think this is an issue that even goes beyond Canada. Um, you know, I think the liberal party under Justin Trudeau and even previous prime ministers has probably done a decent job of kind of paying lip service to providing affordable housing. Um, what, what's your view of the kind of difference between what the liberals are offering and you could even say the conservatives and and really the kind of um the kind of passion that the new democratic party is going to bring to this issue for voters i think that one of the the really big differences is that but you know the new democratic party recognizes that housing uh affordability is tied to a lot of different factors. It's not just that it's not just an isolated thing. Um, and especially in centers like, like Vancouver Center or out in Toronto, um, you've got all kinds of things feeding into the system. You've got uh, in Vancouver, we've got money laundering happening in the property sector. And uh, a lot of people are upset that it's not being addressed. It just seems to keep happening. And then you've got people that are complaining about, uh, uh, you know, foreign buyers who are using our property market to uh, sink their money in a safe haven. Um, but that's that property sitting empty uh, just causes uh, everything to be more expensive. Rent's more expensive. The cost of the properties in the area goes up. And so enforcement is really important. Um, you know, we need the Canada Revenue Agency and the RCMP to have uh, the teeth and the mandate and the resources to go after uh, uh, the, the money laundering. And so the NDP uh, platform includes um, ways to deal with, um, with that issue by providing resources to those agencies so that they can actually investigate and prosecute uh, money laundering crimes. And we wanna see a, foreign, a federal foreign buyers tax put in place as well. But uh, on the other hand, we have to be careful how we do it. So BC, the province of BC has a foreign buyers speculation tax, they call it. And I've had some instances where couples own property, one of them doesn't have their permanent residence. So it's, they're a foreign buyer. 
um, and they don't live in the country 100% of the time. And the BC speculation tax gets applied to a 500 you know, square foot apartment that this couple lives in because one of, the, one of the people living there is not a Canadian citizen. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter that uh, they've been together for 22 years. Uh, they're, they're getting taxed heavily because the government expects that when the one partner is back in their home country, that the other partner will rent half the apartment to someone, a 500 square foot apartment. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous, you know? It's crazy. So, yeah, so I'm, you know, I, I take note of these things. I listen to people. I talk to the people in my riding, and, uh, and then I take it back to federal central headquarters, and I say, look, this is happening. Uh, the BC NDP's uh, got something they need to look into, they need to fix. And we need to make sure that our platform addresses that because the last thing we want to do is take a couple um, who should have, you know, the human right to be together as a couple. Uh, and we don't want to retroactively tax them for the last 20 years that they've owned this apartment. It, it's going to, it's going to bankrupt people and they're not the people that are intended to be targeted by mm. this kind of thing. So we got to go after people who don't, live in the property at mm. all uh or don't have a connection to the country um so it's you know policy's hard is what it really comes down sure. to sure right? yeah the other I thing think, that we think, go, oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead go ahead no go ahead yeah the other thing i was going to say that i think is really important that we see in vancouver center is that uh housing for seniors and social housing is becoming precarious because uh, it's becoming, they're, they're, the government is starting, the provincial government is starting to mix uh, other uh, types of residents in with seniors and they have uh, mental health uh, needs and they have uh, drug addiction disorder needs that uh, aren't served in a housing development that was originally intended for seniors. And so, as a federal government, we need to recognize that we need to provide more services and more support um, so that housing uh, for social housing uh, is more intelligent and more tailored to meet people's needs. And so that we're not housing people in an inappropriate circumstances or far away from the services that they require. I mean, we should be building specific housing for specific people's needs so that they've got the services that they require to have the most successful life possible. Yeah, I think that's totally intuitive. I think I think some people get caught up on this question of cost and, you know, is this really where we want to be spending our money? But I mean, ultimately, if you're rational about it, you look at the examples that are out there, you look at the successes of social housing and other places, it's, it's just, it's obviously a, a good investment. You're obviously going to see a return in terms of people having a safe place to live, living within kind of a, a, a vibrant, lively community rather than kind of atomized into just like these little tiny boxes in an apartment or a condo or you know maybe you can get a, a tax credit for your first time buying a home or a property but is that really enough does that go far enough and the answer is probably no mm -hmm. the, sh the short-sightedness is what really gets me just in terms of of the basics and, and providing kind of you know the basic human rights the basic human needs you know i talk to my peers people my age 
you know, and, and really like home ownership, and this came up in the leaders debate last night, is, is really just for many people just a fantasy, especially in Vancouver. Um, mm-hmm. Young people growing up, I mean, I mean, what does it do to their potential, their ability to self-actualize and grow into kind of the most full human being they can when, when that's, an, that's an avenue that just seems completely close to them, you know? And like, why would you stay in Vancouver if you wanted to have, own a home and start a family? It's, 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 you know, we probably are seeing people just like flee Vancouver itself a lot of the time, just, just to kind of explore that. Well, not even just to explore it, but to like proactively avoid hardship. So I know a couple who's lived in the downtown for a long time. They live in co-op housing and their big concern is that the co-op will, you know, uh, it's, it's a lease. So it's the building's leased by the co-op. When the lease comes up, if the lease doesn't get renewed, you know, at some point they could suddenly find themselves in a very pricey market and uh, made vulnerable by that. So they are moving. They're moving out to New Westminster and they bought an apartment out there where it's a little more affordable. But it's not even young people in Vancouver Centre that can't afford. I, I mean, I, I, some people would consider me, consider me young. Some people would consider me middle, you know, in the middle age, stage of middle age. Uh, I, I'm 44 years old. I'm a lawyer. My uh, wife is 42 years old. She's on the senior leadership team of a bank. We are very fortunate to have a good income. I'm never going to own a place in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, it's that priced out. Yeah. I mean, really, like, what we're doing right now is, is not working. So we definitely need to be thinking outside the box. I think, I think you know, targeting kind of vacant homes, vacant apartments, um, speculation. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for money laundering. It sounds like a great time to launder one's money. But I think on a social level, <laughs> political level, on a moral level, we should not be, you know, letting things like, you know, money laundering on a mass scale negatively affect individuals and families in, in our polity, you know, like it's just seems like an open and shut case to me. Yes, um, absolutely. I also wanted to ask, so another issue that I think is at the top of a lot of people's minds, and I think this is actually a lot of these issues are really interrelated, is, is the environment. Um, you know, <laughs> we're seeing things like uh, heat records being broken, followed by entire communities just burning to the to the ground. Um, and you know, I think the the climate kind of emergency is is really bearing down on us full bore. But even beyond climate change, I mean, when you just look at things like the the basic uh, facts about pollution, about uh, like the the health implications, um, I mean, I think it's long past time for Canadians to really kind of recalibrate and reconsider their whole philosophy when it comes to um, our relationship to the environment, how we interact with it, um, and kind of how that there's there's a dynamism to that, right? That I think is really getting lost. We kind of seem to still view things just purely in terms of resource extraction um, and whatnot. I mean, do you think do you think the NDP's platform is on the environment is another thing that really sets them apart from the Liberals and Conservatives? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, so and and you know. Vancouver Center is a little different than other parts of the country, so I, I, I don't know if this applies everywhere, but here there is a very keen sense of the climate emergency and the, the immediate need for action. Uh, and I think that is informing uh, my support in the, in the downtown, in the, you know, the West End and across the south part of Falls Creek, which we've got a very big riding here. 
But, um, you know, I think this example is best. I've been at several debates now, and um, the Conservatives don't even show up. Um, the PPC got invited to one of them. Uh, the Greens showed up to one of them. Um, Do you think they'd show up to more than one, being, you know, that they're called the Green Party? Yeah. Uh, well, they showed up to the 100 debates for the environment. So I guess that makes sense. But, um, but so I've been, I've been sparring a lot just with Hetty Fry because uh, we show up to all of them. And she has said on several occasions, when asked directly, will she oppose the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion? She has said, oh, well, we've got a lot of oil in the ground and it would be ridiculous to just leave it there. We need to get it out to market. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to do things to offset the oil going out to market. And then she goes on this harebrained scheme of growing blue algae in the ocean and feeding them to cows to offset methane gas. Emissions. Like a science fiction screenplay, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I end up laughing every time she says it because it just sounds so comical. And, um, you know, I think we need to take all the subsidies, you know, last year, almost $20 billion uh, to oil and gas, to fossil fuels. We need to take that and put it into a Green New Deal. We need to do research and technology development. We need to put it into our existing uh, industries like the automotive industry, or even locally, there's Harbor Air here in Vancouver and BC, and they're converting their planes to electric. We should be helping them do that. We've got a company in the lower mainland here called General Fusion that's working on, on fusion research. And the amount of money that goes into fusion research is minuscule. Um, the ITER budget, if I remember correctly, the whole scale of the ITER project, the, the largest fusion project in the world, I think the multi-year budget for that is around $20 billion. So one year of Canada's oil and gas subsidies would pay for something of amazing you know, benefit to, to the world. And we could be a leader in that. And all we have to say is we're not going to give billions of dollars to oil and gas companies anymore. They're profitable. We're not going to expand oil projects. We're going to take everything we've got and we're going to put it into the future. And we're going to, you know, we're, we're a wealthy country. We are on the threshold of being able to seize that opportunity and, and, and actually have a future for our children and grandchildren. Yeah, and that's a smart investment as well. I mean, I really don't see any reason to continue subsidizing the fossil fuel industry in Canada other than that's what we've, we've always done. It's very much one mm -hmm. of those things that people just don't question because it's just been in the background. It's it's like invisible to them. Um, you know, related to a lot of these questions as well, I mean, you've spoken very eloquently on Indigenous issues. Um, and, you know, I mean, one could to put it mildly or diplomatically, say the challenges facing Indigenous and Métis communities. Um, you were involved quite heavily uh, in the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, yes. You were working like, in some cases, like 24 hour, 48 hour shifts, uh, preparing and, and doing doing work on that. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, the, so what, the hearing schedule was very tight. And um, you know, to put it in context, I, assisted 
or well, I didn't assist. I conducted the examinations for testimony of uh, 65 witnesses. Some were public, and I can talk about those. Some were conducted under seal, seal sealed orders, so they'll they, they cannot be talked about. But um, we generally had six weeks end to end. Like we'd meet a, a potential witness uh, at at minus six weeks to hearing date, and then. Uh, uh, we'd work with them, prepare their testimony, try to subpoena documents out of the government uh, or governments, depending on if the provincial or federal or both were were uh, involved. And then uh, and then we'd show up in town the week of the hearing and meet with our uh, witnesses again. You know, go over their testimony, go over their evidence if they brought any, and and you know make that game plan and. The purpose of the of taking the testimony at the national inquiry was not as court-like as uh, as as a court. Um, so we were, you know, if you if you're really talking about who was on trial at the national inquiry, it was the government. It wasn't the witnesses. So part of my role as a lawyer was to lead them through their testimony, make sure that they had. All you know, all the questions were asked. They knew it was coming. Uh, we didn't want to make it any more traumatic than it already was to, to relive these horrible episodes. So, so what would happen sometimes? Six weeks is already a very short period of time. In my previous practice, as a, a before the national inquiry, as a personal injury litigator, uh, I'd usually have a minimum of twenty-four months before I went to court. Uh, and sometimes, you know, several years, sometimes as many as nine years before you take a case to court on personal injury. So the timeline of six weeks is very short. And then on top of that, we'd show up at a hearing and a witness may be dropped out. And suddenly we have to fill the space uh, that's left because these are televised hearings. We, we can't just sit empty. So then we'd, you know, have somebody else come forward who wanted to be witnessing and I'd take on that witness and and I would work with them just, you know, 24, 48 hours straight. I mean, they were getting their sleep, but I was just working to make sure that we had their case fully um, investigated and and prepared so that their testimony would be as impactful as the people that uh, I had six weeks to prepare. That is not easy work. I really appreciate um, all the hard, all the effort there because it's on, it's honestly, obviously something that's, extremely important to at least try and begin to have a full reckoning around. I mean, I heard one commentator say something that I thought was particularly uh, insightful in that, you know, this is an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. Usually law enforcement are tasked with dealing with the murdered and the missing. Has Canada done enough in terms of reforming our, our law enforcement practices in the wake of this, this commission, in your view? I mean, I would personally say not even close. Oh yeah, I would agree with that statement. Um, during the national inquiry, there were three parts to the hearings and the, the one set of hearings were institutional hearings. Um, and the RCMP were there, the RCMP commissioner, uh, Brenda Lucky was there. You know, this is the top RCMP brass. She's the head of it all. And she gave an apology at the national inquiry for the RCMP's role and failures in uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people 
and also um, in failing to protect indigenous women and two-spirit people against violence because that was the other side of the national inquiry that didn't get reported as much. We were also taking testimony from survivors of violence. And a couple of years later, Brenda Lucky gave a statement to the press where she said that she didn't think there was systemic racism in the RCMP. So it Unbelievable. just it just doesn't add up. You know, what was she giving an apology for if there wasn't systemic racism in the RCMP? And we had testimony after testimony after testimony that showed that the RCMP were not, um, you know, were refusing to investigate uh, cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and Two-Spirit people. They were denying jurisdiction and referring it to other uh, police detachments, like municipal police detachments. There was one case that was public where uh, uh, an older woman died in, clearly in RCMP territory. And the case was referred back to the local reserve police detachment, which was like 50 kilometers away. And it just doesn't make any sense. You would think that uh, the murder would be investigated where it happened by the police that are there, not by the police in the, in the home of the, the person who was murdered. Like imagine if I got, I got murdered in Toronto and the VPD get tasked sure. with investigating yeah. my murder. It doesn't make any sense at all. No, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of non sequiturs when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I think um, just staying on this kind of broader issue, you know, we've seen decade upon decade upon decade of underfunding uh, for First Nations communities. You know, I think there's a real huge myth for many Canadians that, oh, you know, the federal government spends all this money, um, when in reality, I think statistically, we're, First Nations communities get about 70% of the funding of their neighbors. Um, and I think this is fairly well understood in academic circles and, and people involved in the issue, but not, not as broadly understood as it should be in the general population. Um, I mean, living in Vancouver downtown, um, you know, there's a, there's a pretty uh, big First Nations community here, but it's a community that, you know, in a lot of ways is struggling. And lately, I've just been wondering if, because we've underfunded these communities for so long, have we kind of created this like false natural state in people's minds, this false reality where it's just natural that poverty exists in these communities and people therefore don't even really see it as an issue. It's, it's, it's just something that they're kind of blind to, or they, they, you know, they're just invisible to the fact that these communities have been underserved and underinvested in after so long. Do you think that's, that's something that, that mainstream Canadians or the majority of Canadians certainly voting in this election need to maybe think about and contend with? I think that, I think that some Canadians are thinking about that. There certainly are many who are not. Um, and uh, when electors in my riding come up to me and say, you know, when is this going to end? How many more times do we have to apologize for this? Uh, if, if I think they're misinformed or, or ignorant of the facts, I'll start to point them to information and hope that they educate themselves. But then there are other people like last time in 2019, this is my second run. So I, I ran in 2019 and a woman came into my office uh, during the election. And she said, I've come here to tell you something to your face. 
every single person that gave testimony at that national inquiry is a liar. And it's a conspiracy to tarnish the reputation of this great country. You can't trust a single thing any one of those people ever says. And then she turned around and walked out. Like, I mean, like, like, hello, white supremacy a little bit. Like, you've, yeah. that's insane. It's just, it's yeah. just, I mean, and also, I mean, coming back to just long-term versus short-term thinking, I mean, who, who thinks, who, would, who could rationally think that by under-investing these communities, we're actually helping build our country up? You know, like, these are, these are people that, if they were properly educated and their needs were provided for, could actually be contributing a lot more just economically, if you want to reduce it to that kind of base level. Like if you just remove the morality, remove the ethics, although obviously like those are really important. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you underinvest in communities, you're just going to end up paying more in social services and whatnot down the line. Are you not? Uh, yeah, it could be. I mean, it's a very complex issue. And part of the reason that it's so complex is that uh, the the Constitution Act of 1867, which used to be housed over in Britain, it, it used to be an act of Britain, but it's the act that established Canada as a state. Um, and it was brought over to Canada in 1982, and then it had a second act attached to it, the Constitution Act of 1982, which has all these wonderful ideas about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and Section 35 recognition of Aboriginal rights. But we kept the old, you know, everything from pretty much from the old uh, 1867 Act. And the separation of powers under the Constitution Act 1867, so the powers of the feds and the powers of the provinces are found in Section 91 for the federal government and Section 92 for the provinces. And it's a list of things that you would expect. It's property and property uh, relationships so you know it's banking it's currency it's patents it's uh forestry you know and then property relationships like marriage which is what marriage really is that law uh and the you know police administration of justice the military all these things but under the federal powers you start going through the list 22 23 is copyright and then 24 is Indians and lands reserved for the Indians. And now as a lawyer, when I'm looking at a list of items in legislation, part of my statutory you know, interpretation is, okay, what is this list enumerating? And I said it just a few seconds ago, property and property relationships. So when I see Indians on a list, I see an implication that Indians are pseudo property in Canada under the control of the federal government. And through modern interpretation of the Supreme Court of Canada, Indians means uh, all Aboriginal peoples in Canada. So that means me, that means as a Métis person that I'm, I'm a pseudo property in this country. It means that Inuit are pseudo property. It means First Nations are pseudo property. Mm. And when you take a look at what happens in our country toward indigenous peoples, it all starts to make perfect sense that yes, the federal government treats us as a property, as a resource to be uh, used. 
in the case of child welfare, the reason that uh, there's such a high over-representation of children in foster care, Indigenous children in foster care, is because the provinces utilize our children, uh, they take them from us as a means to get money transfers from the federal government. So there's literally, it's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry of the provinces taking Indigenous children so they can get these money transfers per child. And then you look at something like Ferry Creek, where the Pachita Nation has said very clearly they want all trespassers off the land, protesters, police, government, industry, all of them off the land. Um, and the federal government hasn't done anything. If the federal government was taking responsibility for Indigenous peoples as people to be protected, then it would be a no-brainer for the federal government to sue the provincial government for trespassing on Pachita territory. It would be a no-brainer for the federal government to sue the BC provincial government for uh, the, the pipeline building on Wet'suwet'en territory. But they never do that. It's a situation where the feds and the provinces tag team in uh, on resource extraction, and they use the power over Indigenous peoples to force us to go along. And if we don't go along, then we get arrested and we get charged and we get thrown in jail and they take our funding away. Um, so the choice is, you know, rubber stamp it, do the consultation and get a little bit of money or fight it and have all these hardships brought down on you and it's gonna happen anyway. It's really disgusting. Um... I mean, going back to the to the kind of child abduction and and the foster care system and whatnot, quote unquote. Um, I saw on among your uh, the materials on your website, you, there was a one recent report from BC where an Indigenous infant was taken away from her from the mother on allegations of neglect ninety minutes after the baby was born by C-section. Yeah, and this that's happened right. recently. I mean, there's also been forced sterilizations in the news recently. I mean, this is the kind of thing that when you hear about it, I mean, it just the, the, the fact that these are ongoing processes or processi is just should be apparent to anyone looking at the facts. And I think really like the resistance to looking at these realities in the present day is one of the main things we have to overcome to really even open the door to a full reckoning and full accounting for these kinds of things. And, and that's, that's what I would say to that person that came into your office and said, you know, when, when is, when is it going to be enough? I mean, you hear people say this too. They say things like, oh, we tried reconciliation as if reconciliation was ever really attempted in a, in a, in a, a full-throated way. I mean, probably the highlight of the leadership debate last night for me was when uh, Jagmeet Singh said to Pierre, or not Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, you know, you can't, you can't take a knee in solidarity with these communities and then, and then take Indigenous kids to court the next day. I mean, the federal government is fighting people in court over these issues. And to me, that's where the liberals have certainly lost any kind of moral legitimacy on this question. I feel like they're extremely two-faced. Obviously, I don't trust the conservatives at all either. Um, do you really, do you think really when it comes to these, these, this kind of constellation of issues, interconnected issues, the NDP are really the only game in town in terms of like having any kind of real moral leadership when it comes to this? I think that um, the NDP has the, the best moral leadership in, in that area. Um, I think that 
this is going to be a long multi-generational struggle to uh to 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 find true justice and reconciliation and it's going to require some really difficult um acknowledgement from the majority of canadians uh and in vancouver center a lot of people are making these you know realizations maybe earlier than other parts of the country i had a gentleman come up to me yesterday while i was out sign waving and talking with people and uh, he said i voted for you and my wife voted for you in the advance uh we, we wrote in your name and we voted for you because you're speaking the truth about what's happening to indigenous people in this country and we voted for you even though you're running for the ndp and as six-figure income earners Voting for you means it's going to impact our financial interests because you want to tax us. We're in the highest tax bracket and you want that to bring in that 2% tax. But we voted for you anyway because it's more important. You know, this isn't just a money issue anymore. This is, uh, you know, he just, he didn't even have the words, but yeah, I could tell what he was saying. You know, basically we're fighting for our humanity as a country, Absolutely. because so many inhuman things continue to happen. I have a relative, uh, you know, a, a, a distant cousin, you would say, in, in non-Indigenous terms, who uh, was in her 20s. She had an eight-year-old son. She wanted to do better by her son, so she went to university. She moved from Alberta to BC. She went to university, took her son with her. Partway through the school year, she went missing. She's never been found. Um, and her son was put into foster care in British Columbia. And some of my relatives from Alberta uh, tried to apply to have him return to us. These are three different families who have jobs and homes, and they would have taken care of him, and he would have been safe. And instead, after two years of fighting and resisting, the BC government adopted him to a non-Indigenous family. And our family is now denied all contact with him. We don't know where he lives. We don't know how he's doing. We've got no idea if he's being abused, which happens a lot. And um, I can't tell you his name and I can't tell you his mother's name because it's illegal under the laws of Canada to identify them. And that's how genocide is erased in this country to this day. I just, I, I don't even have the words. It's just, it's just unthinkable that this would be the, the, the policy and the practice of, of any kind of government that claims to represent its people. I mean, it makes me think of something, another one of my favorite podcasts, Champagne Sharks, they were talking about, that's a kind of a black politics and culture podcast out of the States. And they were talking at one point about adoption rates uh, of black children in the US and how they were overrepresented and, and their theory. And personally, I think they're really onto something was that there's this idea that any any non white child adopted by white adoptive parents is automatically somehow better off just by nature of being adopted by a white family. That's just snap your fingers. They're automatically better off. And I cannot think of a more kind of disgusting attitude to have that somehow just by nature of someone's background, 
they're automatically going to be a better parent or caretaker to someone rather than their own their own family their own their yeah. pe- the people that they come from the people that know them the best have the obviously you know i mean we're talking about basic biology here obviously parents under most circumstances are the ones best suited to care for their own children and i'm trying not to swear here for emphasis but i mean it's a real it cuts to the heart of the immorality at play here yes yes and you know we know uh, I have many friends and, and family who were part of the 60s scoop, and we know how difficult and traumatic and damaging it was for them. Uh, so there's, there's no excuse for it. Um, the reason that these children are taken from us is because the provinces get a transfer of money, um, and, uh, you know, they, they just want that, they want that money. I mean, in Alberta, it's so industrialized there, the taking of children that um, I saw uh, instances where the province has these teams that they put together for child abduction, which is what it is. Um, and they consist of a social worker, uh, a police officer or RCMP officer, a medical doctor, a psychologist, Uh, sometimes other experts, and they'll identify a family to take the children from. And the social worker will go in and take the children. And if the, you know, usually it's a single mother. If the mother resists, they go away. And uh, they get the lawyers also on the team. They get the lawyers involved. And the lawyers go to court and argue that the mother is a mental health risk to the, the community. And then uh, they get an order for her to be incarcerated in mental institution. And then they go back, the social worker and the police go back early morning, you know, five in the morning. And they take the mother into custody under this mental health order. They take the children into custody under foster care. They move the children to another city. They put the mother in a mental institution and dope her up to the point that she doesn't know what's up from down. And they leave her that way for two weeks, less 15 minutes. And then they push her back out on the street. And the reason they wait until 15 minutes before is because at two weeks, she's entitled to go before a judge and describe what has happened to her and why it's wrong. So they don't want that to happen. So here's this woman. She's just had the most violent thing you can possibly do to a parent. She's had her children taken away. She's still coming down off the drugs that she was on in the mental institution. She's been away from her home for two weeks, probably hasn't paid the rent, probably has been evicted. She's homeless on the street. She has no idea where her children are. And that's happening in Alberta to this day. I mean, it's a, it's the most disgusting grift one could conceive of. Um, And then I I got, the story isn't done. I forgot one part. So, so the province is getting all this money, but if the mother starts to fight it and goes to court to fight it, the province is getting money transfers from the federal government to fight it in court. And so I've got an instance uh, where uh, a mother fought and uh, one of the psychologists on this team wrote a 30-page expert report to the court to keep the child 
to keep her child in, in foster care. And the, the psychologist never saw the child, had no interaction with the child, wrote an expert report without having spoken to the subject of the report, which is against her professional obligations as a psychologist. And the mother knew this, and she made a complaint to the, uh, to the uh, professional regulator for, for psychologists. I can't remember the name of it in, in Alberta, maybe just the College of Psychologists, but they have different names everywhere. Regardless, she made a complaint. There was a hearing. Uh, it came out of the hearing that the psychologist got paid $25,000 for this 30-page report. That's coming from the feds. To, to make this happen. The, the document was, was relied on by the court to keep her child in foster care. Um, and at the end of the day, the regulatory body said, yep, that's, that's wrong, you're sanctioned. So what they did was they suspended her license for three months and they required her to, uh, to spend another three months under the supervision of another psychologist. They didn't, they didn't make her return the $25,000. They didn't put any practice restrictions on her to continue to do this work for the Alberta government. Uh, it's just continuing on and on and on. It's, it's just so contemptible. I mean, and people talk about, oh, you know, we don't have the money to provide basic services to these communities. Maybe we'd have the money if we didn't spend it on crap like this. Pardon my French. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, I mean, I always like to end the episodes on a super depressing note, but in this case, I'll try and buck the trend a little bit. I mean, I personally feel as though the majority of Canadians are <coughs> have either woken up to or about or close to waking up to the fact that that participating in these kind of dehumanizing systems, supporting the, these kinds of systems with your tax dollars and even just with the ideology that you carry around with you as you live your life, that dehumanizes you as well. Like we're, we're all dehumanized by these practices. It affects us all on, on a spiritual, moral, ethical, social level. Um, and that's why it's really like the number one issue for me, this election. Um, it's why I encourage everyone to support you. Everyone check out electbreen.ca. Phone banking uh, opportunities available now. The exciting world of phone banking is for, is for everyone, available for all. Um, because, you know, I mean, I, I, I just... I just, I want to wake up in a country and I want to start my day in a country that I think is, is on a general level behaving somewhat ethically and morally. And we still have a lot of work to do to get to there, to get, get, get to that point. Um, well, I know- I, I'll, I'll, I'll end on a, I'll end, I'll end, I'll finish that on a positive note. So Please Vancouver do. Center really seems to be thinking the way that you're thinking right now. Um, we've been having tremendous successes in our fundraising and it's a it you know it's not a guarantee that you're winning but it gives you a really good barometer of what's happening in the riding and to date uh since the election started we have raised eighty-five thousand dollars for this campaign and 40 percent of it is coming from people who have never contributed to the vancouver center ndp so that's huge yeah there's something changing in this riding and i think that uh you know as sad as the announcements of the 215 children and further announcements after it are 
Um, and and as sad as it is that indigenous communities have known that this was the case for so long, and as sad as it is that Jack Layton spoke about it in the House of Parliament before he died, and people still continue to say, no, it was just a lie. It's just you know, these Indians are lying about things again. It's had a real impact this year. Mm. And uh, I, I think that in Vancouver Centre, people realize like they have an opportunity to elect the first Indigenous MP for this riding. And they're getting behind that because they want to see the type of change that you are hoping for. And uh, it gives me a lot of hope that, you know, we're going to win this thing. And it's, it's fantastic. So, you know, whatever your listeners can do to help, you know, whether it's money or volunteering, uh, we'll take it with a lot of gratitude uh, and thanks. And I, I wholeheartedly support all my all the Canadian listeners to do so. I mean, I really think this is an important election. I think the Liberals messed up by calling it when they did. Um, you know, after promising to to have regularly scheduled elections, and you just look at the litany of broken promises. You know, I really don't think Canadians, by and large, have that much trust in the Conservatives. I think a lot of the people in the polls that are supporting them are really just anti-liberal at this point. Um, but, you know, I think I think the NDP have a great leader. I think they have a lot of fantastic uh, candidates and MPs like yourself. And um, yeah, I wanted to thank you for, for taking the time, you know, 10 days to the election. I'm sure you've got a super packed schedule. So fantastic to meet you. Fantastic to get to converse. And thank you so much for being out there and, and fighting the good fight. Yeah, well, thank you, Isaac, for having me on. I really appreciate it.